לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, that's in New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter, Day School, Long Island, it's great to see you. This is the last Parsha of Breshit, I don't want to let it go, I don't want to let Breshit go. I love this book, this is our family story, we'll talk about it, we have to get right in because there's just so much material. We are, we are dealing with some of the deep themes here, it's the passing of a generation, it's the death of Yaakov. Uh, just let's let's do the, the low-hanging fruit here. At the beginning of the Parsha, Jacob, Yaakov, insists that he be buried in the land of Israel. Can you talk to this for a second, Jeremy? What's what's this about? What's, what's behind this? What is, what's going on, on on the surface? What do you think is going on, on the, beneath the surface? You know, I, th- I think I've uh, alluded to this one fact in, in previous conversations, uh, especially on Parshat Chaye Sarah. I, I like to mention this because I think this is a really illustrative uh, piece of Torah. You know, when David buys Goren Ornan, he buys the site that will be the Beit HaMikdash, he pays 50 shekel kesa, 50, 50 coins of silver. And when Abraham buys the Ma'arat HaMachpelah, the cave that will be the burial cave, he pays 400 shekel kesef. He pays, he pays literally eight times the uh, amount for the space that will be the ancestral grave over the space that will be the, the temple. And, you know, there's lots of reasons to be connected to the power of this story. Some of them are about God's teaching. And that's the Torah. That's the conventionally religious aspects of Judaism. It's the Torah. It's the mitzvot. It's worship. It's symbolized along the Beit HaMikdash. Some part about it is family and land and ancestral connection. Owning your burial place. There's like nothing more, um, you know, tribal and communal and familial than we are all lying together in this earth. So Jacob, who is destined to be buried in Merat HaMachpelah, even though we know that he loves Rachel more, he loved, Rachel is his true wife. You know, when Judah, just at the last parsha, Judah says in this heartbreaking way to, to the Joseph he doesn't yet recognize that, that Jacob, his father, said, my wife gave me two children. Well, what do you mean your wife gave you? You had, you had lots of wives, and my mother Leah gave you six children, six sons and a daughter. And, but no, but Jacob loves Rachel, but he doesn't want to be buried next to Rachel. He wants to be buried in the ancestral homeland in Kiryat Arba, Hi Hebron, Me'arata Machpelah. This is the sense that he belongs to this tribe, to this, to this chain of, of past and future that is Abraham and Isaac, that is Sarah and Rebecca and Leah. And so he's got to go. He's got to go there. Barry, how, how do you see this? 
So I think to add to what Jeremy said so eloquently, this is a kind of homecoming for Jacob. Jacob is, in a sense, like his grandfather Abraham, traveled a lot. Abraham, we remember, came from Mor Kastim, stopped in the Haran, made his way into the land of Israel, Eretz Canaan, and then goes down to Egypt and comes back up. Jacob is born in Eretz Israel, but he does go east, fleeing from his brother, marrying the two sisters, acquiring the two other wives, having his children. And then he too has to go down to Egypt, and he wants to make sure that he will continue the chain of tradition set by his grandfather, and if not in life, at least in death, to come up from the land of Egypt. So he's going to go to Maratha Machpelah because that is the eternal Israelite possession. That is where our history in the land begins, because that is the first place that Abraham actually possessed as his. He paid for it. It's hard not to see also just a little hint of contempt for Egypt. You know, I don't want to be buried in this spot, you know, for all the reasons that both of you said, which is I have this ancestral yearning and I, I want to be connected to family, but you know what? I don't belong here. I, and and there is, I think that tension of where do you belong is really running through uh, this 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 story. It's it's on so many levels. Um, and, and just one other footnote about uh, Jacob here. He makes Joseph swear to this in a way that, just like, yeah, yeah, dad, it's not going to work. It's like, no, swear to this. I pro- you know, promise me you'll do this. Take a binding oath to this, which tells me, you know, just in, in, the, in the frame of this is a man who's approaching his end. There's still a lot of the old Jacob there. I love this idea yeah. that this guy, yeah. this guy is 147 years old, but you know what? There's, a, there's still a lot of him going. So yeah, can, I say one thing about, can I say one thing about, uh, I've been, I've been um, making my way through, you know, all those, all those biblical books that I haven't ever studied closely. So I've been making my way through the prophets and I've been reading Yirmiyahu, it's Titanic, Titanic book. And Yirmiyahu, you know, is living in the destruction. Nebuchadnezzar is, is ravaging all the Middle East. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar is destroying the Beit HaMikdash. And Jeremiah has an overwhelming message for the survivors of the uh, survivors of the Chorban. You guys should stay in Eretz Yisrael, or you should go to Bavel, but you should not go to Egypt. This is the terrible thing. Do not go to Egypt. Egypt is the worst. And in fact, he's with a group of people who just survived the uh, assassination of, of Gedalia, for whom we fast. And they say, ask God, tell, tell, ask God what we should do. And comes back with the message, says, whatever you do, go to Babel, stay in Eretz Yisrael, just don't go to Egypt. They say, uh, no, we're going to Egypt anyway. And they take him forcibly and bring him to Egypt. But I was struck, you know, the Bible in Yirmiyahu there did not make explicit reference to Egyptian slavery, but the just natural or almost instinctive or cultural, whatever you say, revulsion, no Egypt. You'd think that he would be madder at Bavel. Bavel has just destroyed the temple. No, no, Bavel's part of the plan. Egypt, no way. I think there's a, there is a revulsion, and, and we can see clues of that in the way that there's disdain for Egypt. Mizeh, take us out of this place. Yeah, you don't name the place. Okay, so we're moving on. The, 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 Jacob gets Joseph to promise this, 
And then we, we're, we're moving into the, the first of the deathbed scenes where um, the adoption of Joseph's sons takes place. Um, Barry, you want to describe this for us? What, what is happening here? And, and, and give us a, a bit of a theory as to what, what is taking place here in terms of Jacob's adoption of Joseph's children. So Jacob is on his deathbed and um, Joseph brings his sons so they can be blessed. And we have to remember that Joseph's sons have an Egyptian mother. Presumably they have Egyptian names and they've only known the land of Egypt. They have not known the land of Canaan. And Joseph presents his sons to his father for his blessing. And Jacob at first is wondering who these people are. And Joseph tells him that they are my sons, Manash and Ephraim. And Joseph, Jacob goes to bless them. And even though Joseph has presented Manasseh as the firstborn and Ephraim as the secondborn, as the Torah records their birth order, Jacob switches his hands and puts his hand on signifying the elder son on Ephraim and the one signifying the younger son on Manasseh. And Joseph is kind of perturbed and says, this is not the way we do things here. Just like his uncle Levan had told him that this is told Jacob, we don't do things like that in Aram Naharaim either. And Jacob says, no, this is how we do things. I love that. And I think this is actually a very uh, profound comment on one of the difficulties with the the Torah tradition. Our heroes tend to be the youngest or the second born. Very few firstborn children make it in a way that we want to emulate, Abraham being the notable exception, perhaps. But Joseph, who, even though he's a firstborn of his mother, Rachel, is the 11th child. He's pretty far down on the pecking order. And even though he's second in command to Pharaoh, he's still second to Pharaoh. He's not the first in the land. But like a lot of other people, when they come from behind, come from out of nowhere, they want to reinstitute the pattern that existed before. So now Joseph, he's made it. He wants to be recognized as a firstborn, and he wants his firstborn to get the firstborn blessing. And Jacob says, no, that that blessing is not determined by birth order. It's determined by the grace of God. And I think that we have to understand that this is part of God's plan as well, because the boys will be blessed with the name of God. So is it possible to see in this moment a a cultural conflict between, you know, the Jacob culture, which we're going to call Jewish culture, and and the Egyptian culture also, you think so? I think it's more of a human thing. I mean, what I one of my great loves is medieval English history. Um, you know, a lot of conflict, a lot of kings. Um, one is worse than the other. How can you not love this stuff? And <laughs> as we know, when you're second born in the medieval monarchy, you're kind of out of luck. The only way you could make a good life for yourself is either to accept your fate kindly or to kill the king. And then you can become the king. But once you become the king, you don't want the next generation to be the best man standing. You want it to be your oldest son. You know, that's just how we do things. We 
we we lack a kind of consistency that we want from other people, but are do not want to impose on ourselves. And I think this is, you know, Joseph is supposed to understand here that he, in fact, is a, a youngest son, not an older son. And I know, I know. And again, I want to say, you know, this is Jacob, the old old Jacob being being Yaakov Avinu. He is like, it's going to be my way. I'm, I'm, yeah, but I think I think slightly different because I, I while I think it is quite correct, you were sort of pointing to Yosef as being a somewhat marginal figure in terms of the Jewishness. I mean, he has grown up by this time. He's lived more in Egypt than he did in Canaan. I think Moshe and Joseph are very interesting characters because they are sort of mirror images of each other, both partly Egyptian, both partly, uh, you know, Israelite and, and uh, the boundaries. But in this case, I don't think that that explains the the conflict here between between Jacob and, and Joseph or their, their miscommunication. Um, I think that the general thrust of all of these second-born stories is normal life goes by primogeniture. Redemptive moments come when primogeniture is unseated. And I would say that with, with you know, Isaac and Yishmael, with Jacob and Esau, and now once again, there's a parent who, uh, who sort of expects things to be the regular way. You want it to be the regular way and you, and you want order to be maintained. But um, there are redemptive moments in which the typical order gets unseated. And, and this is one of them. Joseph says, I mean, Lavan says to Jacob back with the Leah Rachel episode, this is not how we do things. We do things the right way. And Jacob has to follow along and he does the right way, the quote unquote right way. And here too, Joseph is saying, no, no, let's do things the right way. And he says, I know what the right way is, but this moment calls for the wrong way. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so we're, the, 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 the next centerpiece of the Parsha is the blessing that Jacob gives to his sons. It's a very complicated, uh, poetic, and very, very compressed set of uh, verses, highly charged with lots of different themes, which, which deserve really hours and hours of conversation. But I want to go skipping over that blessing. Let's go to the death scene of Jacob. Jacob is completed, blessing his children. He, he puts his feet back into bed because he, he was st- sitting up in bed while doing this, 147 years old. He's like showing his strength, another aspect of the old Jacob. He's got a lot of physical strength. He expires like a book. He expires. And he's gathers his people. And of course, you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say It doesn't say that he died. To which Rashi says, Yaakov Avinu Lomait, right? Quoting the Talmud. And Shlomo Karlbach immortalized. Translate, translate, translate. Yaakov Avinu Lomait. Yaakov, I'm sorry, Yaakov Avinu. Our father Jacob didn't die. Like, like, like in the Princess Bride, where Miracle Max says, "He's not dead. He's not all the way completely dead. Mostly dead. Mostly dead. <laughs> mostly dead means slightly alive. <laughs> no, but Jacob is is mostly dead. But Odavinu Chayes, as the song goes, our father yet lives," said Shlomo Karbuk in Odavinu Chay. Right? 
it's a reference to this. So it's a lovely, lovely moment of, of understanding that the lives of our ancestors live on with us as they are bound into the bonds of life, say Rahman. Right, but this is what happens when people don't always understand poetry and metaphor. Indeed. Because okay. when it says Vayikva and Vayasafela Aviv, whatever the exact words are, that means he died. He died. Well, right. Of course it means he died, but, but the... And the so you have to ask yourself, I think for a moment, um, what Rashi is really doing by saying that Jacob... Yeah. didn't die it's doesn't always serve us well i understand midrash has its own um rubric <laughs> its own rubric its own way of expressing itself but you know one of the dangers is someone afterwards takes it the wrong way and says oh says jacob didn't die he must still be alive yes and that doesn't always serve us well okay fine. Listen, the, the people people can be people can be crudely Pashtani, they could be they can be crudely literalist and yes they can lose the the poetry but I would say that that the that the rabbis who make such a drash I mean first of all the the Talmud um, is is so charming about this it, it, it says it says uh, and then it says well then uh, why did they embalm him and and uh, and, and, and eulogize him and yeah. uh, and then the Talmud continues and says no 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 you don't understand what I meant I meant kayam afu kayam as long as his descendants live so he too lives so it, it is clear that it is a poetic figure but it's also true and I love this about Midrash that in reading quote unquote hyper literally they discover the little slippery spaces in between the words and what it might mean. So, because this is not for the rabbis, um, normal human speech that just like has a semantic, a normal, normal human speech, you says something and it means what it says, but divine speech is like omni-significant, everything matters, all the pieces have something to say. And the very fact that it shows as opposed to ah, it must mean something. Right, so this is reminiscent of the disagreement between Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Akiva. And, you know, Rabbi Ishmael tended to be more of a, a modernist in the sense he said language has rules, and that, the rules of the language dictate how we understand it. Rabbi Akiva was much more imaginative, but again, it didn't always serve the Jewish people well. It made for some very interesting, nuanced discussions of biblical text. But it also may have been responsible for leading the people astray. And I think we have to be aware of that. But it All seems, right. Jeremy, that you find more favor with Rabbi Akiva and perhaps me with Rabbi Ishmael. Well, you know, I, I do think, uh, I, I, as, as I mean, we're, you're, you're referring to, it's, it's not just Heschel, but, uh, but um, it is certainly true that this is a major theme of Abraham Joshua Heschel's book. Uh, in, in Hebrew, we say, Torah min the the uh, uh, translated into English by Gordon Tucker as heavenly Torah uh, through the prism of the generations or something like that. Um, and by the way, this coming week, um, Monday or Tuesday is Heschel's Yard of Heschel. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the 49th Yard Side of Heschel, and next year will be the 50th. So he, well, he, has, he has these two images. Like, like you said, of, of, of Rabbi Ishmael, the relatively 
rationalist and Rabbi Akiva, the relative mystic. And the whole point of that heavenly Torah book is that these two are the double helix of Judaism and they both wind together. And I want them both, you know, I don't want to have to pick one and, and, uh, I will, I will promiscuously jump from one to the other when necessary. I agree. I think we can be promiscuous here. Okay, so let's go back to... The- Unfortunately, I can't say what I want to say because of the- <laughs> <laughs> So, So we are... So Joseph's in a bind here. And, and uh, Jacob has made him promise to take him up and bury him in uh, the land of Canaan. And uh, it's not so easy for him to get permission to go out. And... and I think the Torah wants us to appreciate exactly what kind of bind he's in. He, he sends a, a missive to Pharaoh. He really, you know, basically begs Pharaoh permission to... Well, it's kind of obsequious, his approach, right? And I think we get, you know, this is, I think you mentioned this earlier, Elliot, this is really the chink in the armor because Joseph is not quite the second in command. He's just lower down on the totem pole and he's being pushed down. All right. So what do you make of the fact that the family goes up and they leave the children behind? They, they, there's a big profess, procession and, and Egypt also sends like the entire government, the Congress, the Supreme Court, everybody to go up to Canaan and bury them. And they leave the women and children, they leave the children behind. What do you make out of that, uh, Barry? Well, it's not a good, good thing. Um, but I'm reminded from a personal moment that when my mother's father died, I was eight years old and, or seven years old. And um, I didn't go to the funeral because my mother said I was too young. So there could be an element of that. But I think in the context of the story, it's clear they're being left as a pledge because Pharaoh is only letting him go to bury his father. He wants to make sure that he comes back. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is Pharaoh, uh, certainly from our point of view, I think is an outsider in Egypt, but he's an outsider that the Pharaoh needs. And he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure he comes back. And what better pledge than to keep your kids? Okay, so (laughs) they go up, they bury him. And there's this moment afterwards where, where the brothers have to kind of resolve everything. Um, and um, we don't want to go into that. Well, let's go now to the, to the final scene of the, the Parsha and the final scene of the book. And Jeremy, pick it up for us uh, at the end here. It's very emotional. It's, um, it's, um, it's a very profound moment. So take us to the end of the book and the end of the Parsha. And, and let's try and uncover the, the real theme here, which is, how do we get redeemed from this mess? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a really sad moment. I mean, you, you kind of alluded to it. Yeah. Um, after Jacob is dead, they've, they've now returned. Um, uh, the brothers say, oh, listen, before he died, remember, remember, uh, Abba gave this, this requirement that you not kill us. They're still very, they're still very, very guilty. And Joseph who is given to great emotion, weeps again. He says, I'm not going to kill you. I never intended to kill you. you. You did try to harm me, but God planned it for good. And this has all worked out reasonably well. And, um, and so, no, I really am reconciled to you. I really am. 
Um, and so he reassures them. It says, He speaks to their heart. And so they remain. And this that's a, a lovely moment of reconciliation. And he lives and he sees in other generations, but there's dark clouds on the horizon. This book really, you know, with the exception perhaps of Shmot, uh, I would say Shmot ends on an excellent note. The, ta- the tabernacle has been built and God's presence fills it. But the other books all end on a somewhat dark note. This one ends also that Joseph says to, to them, listen, I'm about to die, but one day, one day, God is going to take care of you and bring you out of this land, this, this land where we don't want to be, and return you to the land that God had sworn to, sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this, where we are now, is 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 in some sense, profoundly negative, or at least it's going to get very negative. It's the foreshadowing of what's about to happen. And Joseph makes them also swear that when God takes notice of you, um, you have to take my bones too. So he's, he, uh, you know, you're going to have to bury me back also in the land, in the land of Israel. Um, and Joseph dies and he's, and he's embalmed and put in a coffin. So the Parsha ends in death, but it also ends in, you know, this awareness that there is some future burial place back in the sacred land, back in the land sworn to the ancestors, and they're not there now. Now, presumably, if Yosef was so all that, if he was the most powerful guy and had given instructions to Pharaoh's court, he said, listen, when I die, just like my father did, you know, uh, X many years ago, how, however long it was, couldn't have been that long. Jacob dies at one forty-seven. Joseph dies at one ten. Um, how, how much? How much time is there in between? Something years between the two of them. So how many? Jacob is something like 95, 93 when Joseph is born. So so uh, at one hundred and ten, Joseph. It's about sixty years later. Fifty years. Okay, later. it's it's conceivably still within somebody's memory. And if he had said, listen, remember what we did, you know, 60 years ago, I want the same treatment for me. I want, I want everybody to lead me up and bury me in, in the land of Israel. Um, you, you kind of think maybe he could have pulled that off, but it, it's not what happens, right? What happens is this warning that one day we're going to have a redemptive moment and you're going to take me out. And when that happens, bring my bones with you. But until then, the exile factor, the fact that we're here in Egypt, well, we don't really want to be for too long. Uh, we can't leave yet, but someday we're going to leave. And then my bones go with you. Right. So I think what's important to emphasize here is that Joseph may walk like an Egyptian and <laughs> he will die like an Egyptian because he is going to be embalmed and put in this ark. But he's going to be buried as an Israelite. And I think that is of profound importance because no matter how you leave, you come back home. And this is really the message for the Israelites. And I think it highlights for us the significance of Joseph's bones, which are going to appear two more times in the Tanakh. Once in, I think, Parsha Peshalach, where it says that Moshe took Joseph's bones with him. And again, at the end of the book of Joshua, where they're going to be buried in the land of Israel. And those bones are the people's only physical connection to the land until they get there, right? Because after a few generations, no one remembers being in the land of Israel. And so they have Joseph's bones. And it's a physical sign 
of God's promise. And one last point, if I may, it occurred to me earlier when we were talking about Jacob making Joseph swear. So what's the difference between the oath and Joseph just saying, okay, I promise. The oath has God's name in it, and it's a sign of God's promise. And that also is important here because the Torah, especially in sometimes very overt, but also in covert ways, always emphasizes for us God's role in human destiny. And we have to pay attention to that. So both of you have given very profound meanings and deep meanings. I'd like to be a little shallower here. Okay. Please, have some fun. And I, what I want to say is that, that, you know, there are a lot of unresolved things with Joseph and that he so, so, so much wants to be a patriarch and he just can't be. And, and he aspires to this and he does exactly what his father did, which is his father made him swear to bring his bones up. So he's making his brothers swear. And what I want to say is that, that as, as, as sad as the ending of Breshit is, it's also a little, it's, it's unsettling in the sense that some of the stuff between Joseph and his brothers, most of it is resolved, but there's a little residue that it remains. And that little residue, I think is going to, is going to sustain or be sustained throughout the, the history of biblical Israel. We, we know that that there are problems later on between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. We know that they, you know, forget going that far. Let's go. We're going to go next week into Shemot. It's not that there's a conflict between the brothers. They, they, they do become a nation, and Shemot is the the book where the people emerges as a people. But but it's it's not complete. I I, I we don't get a happy ending with Breshit is what we're all saying. It's a, it's, it's a sad ending. The, the ending is an ending in a coffin, in, in a lead coffin, as the Midrash says, and he is, you know, a mummy, and mummified in Egypt. The, there is resolution, but there's not resolution. He is aspiring to be a patriarch. He's not a patriarch. The end of God's appearance in that way is over. This is the formative moment of the family, it's done. And, and, and now, so let's get to the, to the coda, which is, we are finished now. We've completed another year of reading our family story. It's a milestone in our lives. And it's, I mean, we, we've enjoyed, you know, these dozen weeks with, with our, 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 our family. This is, you know, we make it very personal. We, we, we're inside this story. And that's what the Torah demands of us. That's what makes the Torah great. It really asks of us to be there, to be there on the journey back to Egypt, to be there with Joseph in the room when he reveals himself, to be there, you know, on his dying bread. We're, we're there. And now, uh, you know, I don't want to give it up. I don't want to let it go. You know, <laughs> the only thing that I cannot understand of what you just said yes, is, is why you led into that with, I'm going to be a little shallow. <laughs> There's nothing shallow about that. Well, it's shallow because I think the shallow part is the envy, right? He envies his father, he en and the brothers envy him, and that I find is a coarser instinct. Okay. So here I think we, we have to consider something, and what I think part of the genius of the Torah is to recognize that what makes Sefer Breshit Torah is that it is actually followed by Sefer Shemot. Breshit is not a standalone book. 
We have a tendency to see the five books as individual books. They each have their narrative arc, clearly a beginning, clearly an end. But what makes Breshit really part of our Torah is that immediately it's going to be followed by Sefer Shemot. And that is the Book of Redemption. So even though things are very bad as we end Parsha Parsha Vayachi, the end of Sefer Breshit, they're going to we're going to enter the process of redemption next next week, if we should all live so long and be well. We will all live long and be well. We'll be fine. We can live that long. Well, that that long we can live. We've got some hardship to go through before we get redeemed, though. We got a few hardships. But again, because we know the book, we're not reading it for the first time. We know we're on the path to redemption. We're on the path to redemption. What a great way to end it! Look. Um, I want there were we're ending Vayechi, we're ending this whole book. Um, this is a milestone for the three of us. It's a milestone for our listeners and viewers who for whom we are so grateful. We are just we can't thank you enough for sharing this time with us uh, and enjoying the discussion and the conversation. Please reach out to us, please write to us. We welcome your feedback, your emails. And on behalf of my buddies, I'm going to say Shabbat Shalom.